Our scripture text this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. That is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Who will harm you if you are zealous for doing good? But happy are you even if you suffer because of righteousness. Don't be terrified or upset by them. Instead, regard Christ as holy in your hearts. Whenever anyone asks to speak of your hope, be ready to defend it. Yet do this with respectful humility, maintaining a good conscience. Act in this way so that those who malign your good lifestyle in Christ may be ashamed when they slander you. It is better to suffer for doing good, if this could possibly be God's will, than for doing evil. Christ himself suffered on the account of sins once for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. He did this in order to bring you into the presence of God. Christ was put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit. And it was by the Spirit that he went to preach to the spirits in prison. In the past, these spirits were disobedient when God patiently waited during the time of Noah. Noah built an ark in which a few, that is eight, lives were rescued through water. Baptism is like that. It saves you now, not because it removes dirt from your body, but because it is the mark of a good conscience towards God. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at God's right, sand, right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, all authorities, and all powers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Just a reminder, it's still Easter. I know that seems crazy, and I know that sometimes it feels like I've been saying it for a long time, and in fact, I have been saying it. I've been saying it for six weeks now. It is still Easter. Today is the sixth Sunday of Easter. For those of you who are getting tired of me saying so, I don't know if you are, but if you are, last week's the last Sunday of Easter. Last, next week, I mean, is the, did I say last week? Is that a, is, is that a Freudian slip? No. Next Sunday is the last Sunday of Easter, and this is actually the last Sunday that we'll be in First Peter. Um, I just want to give you guys all a heads up about next week, okay? Um, next week is going to look very, very different than we normally think, okay? Um, I'd say that not to scare you, but to prepare you. Um, we are going to be doing next week, um, I'm calling it, for lack of a better term, a state of the church time together. Our worship service, we will gather together, and part of that worship service will talk about where we are as a church right now. Um, there'll be some kind of spiritual aspects to that. There'll be some practical aspects as we'll talk about where we are financially. And, and part of this is us being accountable to you, right? You are this church, um, and the leadership needs to be accountable to you about where we are, what we're doing, and where we're planning on going. So that's kind of the first house. So we're going to have music and worship in this kind of the same way. And then during the sermon time, I will speak less, which you may be glad about or not. I don't know. I'm not going to presume. But um, half of that will kind of be me reviewing, talking a little bit about where we are and where we are hoping to go. And then the rest of the time will actually be you talking to one another. Okay? I know this, this might be scary or a little unorthodox for some of you, but we're going to have not chairs, we're, we're going to have tables, and we're going to have a small group time where I'm going to ask a couple questions and hope that you will share around your tables. Um, 
And in the interest of gathering what you all think, but also as the, as the board in June will be going to doing some strategic planning, we would like to do strategic planning with what you all are thinking in mind. Right? Because the, the board's job is to do planning, to think about the future, where are we going, what are we doing. But we can do that with the 10, 11 of us and go, yeah, we're good, and then we don't want to leave out you in that process. So I, I say all that to say, please come next week. If, if you're thinking, oh, it won't be important or won't be good or won't be, import, won't be valuable, I guarantee you it will be. Um, if you're thinking, oh, well, I'm not a normal part of this church. Well, if you are here or watching, you are a normal part of the church and value your input. I would love your input. Even, even now, I, if you're here today, you won't be a first-time visitor next week. But even if somebody's visiting, I want this to be a time where we can hear what people are thinking so that the board and the church knows how we ought to go forward. And then we're going to spend some time in prayer at the end, asking God to lead us and guide us and direct us into God's future. Um, it's great to do things that are wonderful and we think are good. And sometimes we go ahead and do things we think are good without asking God if God thinks they're good. And sometimes we think things are really good, but God has something better. And so whatever plans we make and whatever discussions we have, we want to submit to the will and the way of God and take time to actually listen to what God might be saying. Okay? So I know it'll be different. It'll look different and it'll be uncomfortable for some people. I I understand that, which is why I'm warning you ahead of time. I don't want you to be caught by surprise next week. But please, even if you're thinking that sounds uncomfortable, please, please, please consider coming because we greatly, at least me, I, I, I won't speak for everyone, I will tell you me. I desperately want to hear what you're thinking. Good, bad, and indifferent. I want to hear as a leader. So that was sort of a commercial for next week. But it's important to know because next week we'll look different and and be different and it'll be our transition into celebrating Pentecost the week after, which I'm really excited about. All right? Okay, so I'll I'll end the commercial there and and just remind you, you are here, right? So we are here in in the church year. On Pentecost Sunday, we transition from the season of Easter right, the seven week, Easter and the seven weeks following into Pentecost and then into that, that green section, which is called ordinary time. Um, the name is ordinal, which just means numbered. It's not ordinary at all. No time spent in the church should be ordinary. Okay, end of commercial. Okay, so for the last time, I will just talk a little bit about where we are in our scripture. We have been in the last six weeks in First Peter. We've been talking about 1 Peter and what it means, answering the question of so what. How, do, how does the, 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 the Gospels and the, the writers of the New Testament and the writers of the letter address this idea of what difference the resurrection makes in our lives? Right? So, so as we read the epistles, by whether they write Paul or Peter or the epistle of the Hebrews, right, any of that is basically this, the answering of the question of so what. What difference does the resurrection make in our lives? Right? So, so we acknowledge the huge and the biggest difference the resurrection makes. Right, The death and resurrection of Christ gives us atonement. Right, We are made right with God as, as God atones for our sin, as God makes provision for our sin, as God offers forgiveness for us, which is huge and awesome. Thanks be to God because by the death and resurrection of Christ, we are brought back into relationship with God. But that has implications in our lives on how we're to live as a result of the resurrection. You call it the resurrected life, or you call it the cruciform life, or, or a life of Christ, right? Any of that is what we're talking about and what we've been going through. 
So, so we're in First Peter. Peter writes to these churches around, scattered around what we now call Asia Minor. Right in, in these particular areas. And, and the churches there are, are made up of all sorts of people, but largely people who were not Jewish before, right? They, they weren't Jews who converted to Christianity or Jews who decided to follow the Messiah, Jesus, however we want to kind of talk about that in those terms. They're largely people who have come out of Roman society who didn't follow Jesus or didn't follow Yahweh before, who now have, have come to know Jesus, believe that Jesus is Christ's Messiah or God's Messiah and found life in him. And so these, these people who are coming out of their, their situations and coming out of Roman culture and coming out of family life and, and, and all of that and realizing that the call to follow Jesus looks differently than maybe the call was to follow the pagan gods who are all around them. The most notable thing being is in Roman culture, if you wanted to follow a new god, they were all for that. Right? If you said, hey, I found this God and, and this is the God of, of iPhones. And if we worship the God of iPhones, our iPhones will all work correctly. And if we pay the right homage to this God of iPhones, it'll work fine. The, the Roman culture will be like, kudos, right? Because we want our iPhones to work. In, unless you're a, an Android person, but we won't get into that. <laughs> right? So, so it was okay to add other gods, Right? That, that, that was Roman culture. It was kind of like, whatever is good, right? Whatever, whatever helps us to, be, to, to have blessing in this world is great and fine. But what happens when people come to know Jesus and worship Yahweh is they say, wait a minute. These other gods are not gods. They may be powers out there, but, but there is only one God, capital G, right? Yahweh. And so these people who, who before worshipped all these other sorts of gods and, and were okay with it and paid homage and were good citizens because they worshipped in the right ways that the culture deemed appropriate, all of a sudden said, no, we can't do that anymore. We worship Yahweh alone. So I'm not going to offer sacrifices to Artemis or the god of the iPhone or whatever, right? They said, we're not going to do that anymore. Which we kind of think of, well, whatever, you know, whatever's good for you. But in their culture, right, if they really believed, and they did, right, that, that, that if you didn't pay proper homage to, let's say, the god Roma, then Rome wasn't going to succeed. And now all these people are saying, I don't want to do that. It puts you in trouble with the world around you. The, the, the best analogy I can think of is if we just as a group said, we're not going to pay taxes, our roads would be in disrepair, Right? And then the people who did pay taxes would look at the block who didn't and say, wait, well, you use the roads too, right? That kind of idea, right? This idea of people just saying, I'm going to step out of what the culture deems is good and right and appropriate for the community. And so that's what the Christians did. That's what the people in, in these churches that Paul was talking to did. They said, we're out. We're not going to participate anymore in some of the things that you deem as not only appropriate, but vital to the well-being of the individual, but more importantly in this context, the well-being of society. So this puts people who, across the grain of their culture, which sometimes meant like they'd get good-natured ribbing, but sometimes meant that they would be persecuted and sometimes even to death. And so enter that context... And, and Peter begins to address this idea. And, and we've heard, like, last week we got into the household code. I won't go back into that stuff. And this is, like, the, the right after Peter talks about what it means to be good in the household and good in the community. And he kind of just takes it broader. He takes a step back. 
essentially what, <laughs> what he says is there's no value in suffering for doing what is wrong. Right? There's no su- value in, in sort of suffering for, for doing things that are illegal or doing things that are just blatantly wrong or, or, or violent or angry or mean. Right? There, there's no virtue in suffering. There's no virtue in me being you know, called out when I'm rude. Right? That's not suffering for the sake of Christ. That is suffering because I'm being a jerk. Right, so, so, so Peter more than once establishes this idea that there is sort of this universal law and that's thou shalt not be a jerk, even if you're right. Right, and, and, it's a, and it's a fantastic law by which we all ought to live, by the way. Thou shalt not be a jerk. And, and, and elsewhere, Peter will, will make sure to say, right, don't, don't use the freedom you have in Jesus as a pretext for doing what is wrong. Right? So, so he declares to these people, some who may have been slaves, right? He does address slaves like we talked about last week. And he says, don't use your freedom in Jesus as a pretext for doing what is evil, doing what is wrong, right? It doesn't give you the right to kill people. It doesn't give you the right to do all sorts of other things. But rather, as you serve God, do so in a manner that is uplifting, that is good, and that even benefits and works for the good of the societies you you live in, even if those societies don't follow Jesus. Right? So this idea of it, it, it's good to do what is good. And it is good to be a good person in a society, to work for the well-being of the society around us in which we find ourselves, even if we find ourselves very out of step with the values of the societies around us. Right? So, so remember, Peter is in the context. He's telling them to do good, to be good, to, to work for the good of, of, of the communities in which they live to a people who live amidst communities that are dominated by pagan worship, where they have perhaps no rights because they aren't Roman citizens. At one point, he says, honor the emperor. Now, I don't think he's saying, right, emperors are good and we should have more of them. What he's saying is you live in a society, work for the good of your society. But Peter acknowledges, as he ought to and should, that there may come times when suffering happens, not because, in this case, the Christian has done wrong, but rather because they have done what is right and what is good and what is holy and what God perhaps has required. Now, there's multiple contexts in which this could occur, for the person who is following Jesus. The, the, the most, in my mind, the most sort of obvious one for Roman culture would be, right, they offered sacrifices to Caesar, they offered sacrifices to Artemis and Demeter, right? And, and everyone was expected to sort of take part in that civic and cultic religion, right? It didn't matter who you are, it didn't matter um, what city you lived in, you were expected. L- later on in Roman history, it, not quite where, where Peter's addressing now, but not too much further in the future, everyone in Rome would be expected to offer a sacrifice in honor of Caesar. Why? Because Caesar is the benefactor. He's a son of God. Later on, he'll be God, right? They'll, they'll talk about that. They'll say he's deified. And so to offer sacrifice to honor Caesar is to bring the goodwill of Caesar onto the community in which we live. Well, Christians say, you know, question, we have a problem with that. We don't worship Caesar. Caesar isn't Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. We, we bow the knee to no one but, but Jesus. And so this puts people at odds with the culture. In fact, there, um, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again because it's good. Um, early on in Christian history, there was uh, two guys who were writing to one another, uh, Pliny the Elder. It's a great name, right? There is a Pliny the Younger as well. That's why. Anyway. Pliny the Elder writes a letter to uh, the Emperor Trajan, I believe, and says something to the effect of, these Christians won't sacrifice to you. What am I to do? Right? What do you want me to do to them? How, how should I proceed? They, they are, they're disrupting the order of the empire. Right? They're not doing the right things. They're not, they're not engaging in the right ways. And, and because the religion of empire is control, if you can't control people, it's a problem. And so Pliny's like, I can't control these people. They say no when I say you have to sacrifice to the Caesar. And you're the Caesar, what should we do? So, so Trajan writes back, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, hmm, that's quite a conundrum. Here's what I want you to do. Tell them they have to. Tell them if they don't, they will die. And proceed accordingly. So basically, Pliny goes back and he goes to the group of people he's dealing with and he says, okay, I, you said you don't want to offer a sacrifice to the Caesar and, you know, that's your choice. Well, here's a choice. Offer sacrifice to Caesar and you're good. Kudos. Go on living. Do what you want. Worship who you please. But if you don't do this, you will die. We'll kill you. And that was the choice that was offered. Now, this was not empire yet in the, in the time of, of First Peter, but it's not too far in the future. It's coming. And this is happening in smaller ways all throughout the empire. Sometimes it's coming from government, right? If someone's not offering a sacrifice, sometimes it's coming locally. Wait, these people aren't worshiping Artemis, and Artemis is our patron goddess. They're atheists. They're bad people. They might be beaten. They might be ostracized. They might be not allowed to participate in any sort of economic thing. It was a big deal. These are kind of the things that the people of this time were dealing with. It, it wasn't just, you know, being made fun of, although that certainly happened. It, it was real economic and social and household impact, sometimes even dealing with life. And so this is what Peter is dealing with. He says, you may suffer not for doing what is evil, but for doing what is right and good. And so, so he says, if, if this is what's going to happen, if you're going to suffer for following Jesus, suffer for following and caring about the things that Jesus cares about, then there are ways to go about doing that. And we talked a little bit about that last week, right? Following after the example of Jesus. But, but the, the, the really biggest thing he says, is says, do so in ways that you're not being a jerk. You are right to do what God requires. You are right to follow Jesus. But as you do so, don't be a jerk about it. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the short of what he says. Saying you are to follow Christ not only in refusing to do the bad things, but to answering in the ways that Jesus answered. And then he says, always have an answer for the hope that's inside of you. Now, now, I take this two ways personally, which I think is good for us to think about and good ways for us to go. Now, first of it is always know what you believe. Right? If someone says, things are horrible out there, why do you have hope? We ought to have an answer for that. 
And, and I think there's a couple of reasons for having an answer to that. One is because we have a hope. And if we don't know why we have hope, that doesn't make sense. Right? We have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this world is not all there is, that God is bringing all things to himself, that, that God is making all things new. I mean, that is hopeful, good news. We have a hope that God says, when things go bad, I don't leave you there. I love you enough to care about you. When you walk away, I don't. I mean, all that stuff, that is hope. We have hope because Jesus died for us and we have life in his name so that this world and this life is not all there is. That it's not just 70 years and done. Or 90 years. We're living longer now. We have hope for this life and for the next. I, I also have this. This in my mind that, that I think Peter, if he's not saying it here, I think he should or he says it elsewhere. But, but always have an answer for the hope inside of you. So why are you being contrary? If you refuse to do something that, that the law requires or that society says is good for the, the well-being of society, know why you're doing it. If you're going to refuse, refuse for a reason other than I don't have to do that. Does that make sense? Have a reason. If we're going to be contrary, if we're going to be accused of not working for the good of our society, we need to have a reason why. What is the reason that I can say no to this and should say no to this? Right? So let's just take it back to first century. If Pliny the Elder comes in here and says to all of us, okay, I've set up a sacrifice to Caesar in the fellowship hall. You can do it and live or you can refuse and die. It's good for the empire. It's good for society. It's great when we all get along and do the things that make Caesar happy. That is, on one level, true. And so what's the reason we say no? Not because you can't tell me what to do. That's not why we say no. What's the reason for the hope that's inside us? What's the reason we say no? Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Always have a reason for the hope that's inside you. A reason for doing the things we do. For taking the stands we take. We should know why and be able to say why. Other than, I just want to be a jerk. Now, most of us wouldn't say that, but I just want to be contrary. Or you can't tell me what to do. I'm free in Christ. Amen. We are. But... That answer loses power if we just throw it around willy-nilly. Always have a hope, Peter said. Always has a reason for the hope. Always be prepared to give an answer to why. To why we do what we do. And I think why we don't do some of the things we don't do. It's not just a rule. It's not just a rule we can't sacrifice to Caesar. To sacrifice to Caesar is to imply that there is a Lord besides Jesus. So we can take that lots of different places. It's not really where Peter's going here, so I'm going to leave it with that. We're to have an answer, but we're to answer with respect and with gentleness. Not exchanging insult for insult, which is easy to do and sometimes feels the right thing to do. When I'm insulted, the first reaction generally that I have, it's getting better. You hurt me, I want to hurt you back. Even when we're right, that's not the right response. 
We don't trade violence for violence. If we go back to last week's, we don't lie to save our own skin. <laughs> That's the example that Jesus, Jesus sets for us. That's what Peter talks about when he's talking about slaves suffering, right? He was persecuted, he was maligned, and yet no lie was in his mouth. He refused to fight fire with fire, violence with violence, insult for insult, contempt for contempt, lie for lie. He did so with truth. And so we're told to suffer as Jesus suffered. To yes, have an answer for the hope that is inside of us. This is why we are the way we are. This is why we're weird. This is why we're sometimes like, ah, we can't do that. We can't participate in that. We need to have an answer as to why as we follow Jesus' example. That is the call that we're given. And we're to follow Jesus in this pattern, in the things he did and the things he refused. But again, what are some of the things that the people in the first century did? Even some of the things that got them in trouble. Well, they fed the hungry. This was part of the life of the early church. We're going to feed those who don't have food. We're going to care for the sick. Even if they're not our sick. One of the marks of the early church is, I don't know if you know this about the Roman Empire, but cities back then weren't very clean. And there would be times in cities where people would get sick. Plagues would go through them right? I mean, this is really just history in general, but in the Roman Empire as well. Do you know what happened when plagues went through Rome? The elite, the rich, anyone who could really would say, we're heading to our villas in in the country. And they'd leave the city to save themselves. The plague was rampant, right? The poor would be suffering. The poor would get sick because they had nowhere else to go. Do you know what the church did? They stuck around. Even the rich ones, they took care of those who were sick. And this mystified the people around them. It mystified them. They did not know what to do with this. There's another example uh, of a letter that went back and forth. Uh, This one, I think, is the Emperor Julian, and he's talking to his priests. So the priests, like the head of the priests of the Roman Empire. And he writes in this letter, and he says, these Christians are making us look bad. That's that's the essence of the letter. They're making us look bad. Everyone else leaves when there's a plague and they stick around and sometimes they die because they get plagued too. You know what they do? They feed the poor even if they're not Christians. Guess what else they do? When someone dies, they pay for the burial. That was something back then, right? You could be left out in the streets. The rich had places to be buried. And the church said, no, we're going we're gonna to bury them. We're going to take responsibility even for the dead. Incredible, isn't it? And, and, and Emperor Julian is telling his people, he's like, they're doing good stuff. We need to do more of that. Think about that. The empire is saying this little sect of people who follow this person we deny are doing such good work that they're taking all of our people. <laughs> they're doing good. And so sometimes they suffered for it. That kind of good, maybe, more often because they said, well, we're not going to participate 
in worshiping Julian, for instance. We're stepping out of that. We can't do that. All the good they're doing, which they refuse to stop doing, and sometimes they suffered even for doing what is right. And this is what Peter's talking about in our text today. I just want to, I'm not going to end, but I'm going to tell a story as a way of illustration of this. So there's a story about, um, well, it's not a story, it's real, right? This is the Emperor Septimius Severus. For those Harry Potter fans, Severus Snape, that might sound familiar. Anyway, this is Septimius Severus. Septimius Severus was a guy who did not particularly like the Christian religion. And so what he did is he outlawed, not Christianity, not yet, at this point. This is 200, 300s, I believe, BC, or AD. He didn't outlaw Christianity, but he outlawed anyone converting to any other religion. Right? So, so it became illegal under his reign and his rule because things were getting out of hand and he couldn't exert control over this group. He said, we can't have any more people converting to that Christianity stuff. So, so we need to put a kibosh on that. It's illegal under the pain of death. It became illegal. Capital crime. You'll be put to death if you convert to Christianity. So you might think that this had sort of an impact where less people were converting to Christianity. And that may have been true, but it didn't stop people from converting to Christianity. In fact, there's a story of of two women. This is Perpetua and Felicitas. They lived in Carthage. And under this time, as as, um, Septimius Severus said, no conversions under the pain of death, these two women became Christians. Well, let, me, let me back up. They didn't become Christians. They started the process of converting to Christianity. It took longer back then. It was a process. It didn't just happen. There was a process called uh, catechism, right? You went through catechism, then you were baptized, then you were in, right? And you weren't officially a Christian until you were baptized. Okay, we could argue that other times, but we're not going to today. Just know that that's the case. They weren't yet Christians. They were converting in the process of converting to Christianity, and someone found out. Now, interesting thing about these two women. One of these women was very, very wealthy. She was from a wealthy family, and she had married a wealthy man. She was very well-to-do, very well-connected in her community. Right? In Carthage, they had, she had connections. She had influence, at least as much as her family was concerned. She was newly married and a new mother when she con- was in the process of converting to Christianity. Again, somebody found out. I don't know, somebody named names. I don't know how it worked back then, but... She was arrested. Perpetua. Felicity was was an interesting other story because she was a slave in the household of Perpetua. Now, again, we could talk about that ad nauseum and right, but but she too, presumably because of the witness of those around her, decided she too wanted to follow after this Christ. Under the pain of death, knowing it's illegal, knowing she shouldn't. But she's a slave in the household of a perpetua, but she says, I am going to become a Christian as well. Felicity was pregnant at this time. It was found out that both of them were converted to Christianity. They were arrested, along with many other catechumens in that particular time, and they were thrown into prison. And Perpetua kept a diary the whole time that she was in prison, up to, up to the time of her death. She kept a diary. And so we have this story that's called the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, at least not at length, but I'm going to give you the high points, as it were. 
So they're in prison. And presumably given the opportunity to recant of their faith. They haven't converted yet, so they they haven't actually done the, the deed yet, but they're about to, and that comes at the pain of death. And so presumably they're given the opportunity to renounce, to say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. No, I'm not a Christian. Both of them refused. Felicitas is is the interesting one because if she were a slave and had become a Christian, as sometimes was, it did happen, that it, it wasn't just one person who became a Christian, it's the whole household, right? And if you were a slave in a household, you got it whether you wanted it or not. But even Felicitas refused to recant. She was given the opportunity to not die for this faith she had not fully accepted yet. And she said, I refuse to recant. And so both of them stayed in prison. Perpetua was a new mother with a nursing infant. I can't imagine the moral quandary that put her in. And yet she refused. She knew it was a steep cost. Her dad came in and and tried more than once to get her to recant. Her dad said, just say you're not a Christian. Just lie about it. It's okay. No one else will know. You'll be fine. Recant. Is it that important? She said something to the effect of, you cannot call something what it is not. She said, I am a Christian and I cannot call myself anything other. said to do so would be to false, would be to lie, and it wouldn't be true. Even if she said it, she said it wouldn't be true, and I can't say it. It got so bad at one point that, that the, 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 the leader of the jail, the jailer, knew that the tactic of, of having an infant son wasn't working, knew the tactic of having her dad uh, you know, try to cajole her into, into recanting didn't work, and so they brought her dad and they beat him in front of her. Said, okay, if you won't recant, we'll just beat him to a bloody pulp. And she records the feelings that she has as she's watching her dad be beaten. And you can feel the moral quandary, but also the certitude of going, I cannot call myself anything other than I am. So time goes on. And and the the hour of their their impending deaths are getting closer and closer. This is the time of the Colosseum, of the games, right? They're slated to be put against and to fight wild beasts. That's how they're going to die. And they refuse to recant and they become Christians. They're baptized ultimately. No turning back now. It even gets to the point where, where in Roman culture, I mean, they had this rule that you could not put to death someone who was pregnant, right? You couldn't make the fetus suffer for the parents, right? So, so, so they, they tried to delay the day of, of Felicitas's, um, of her crucifixion, her death, right? Because she was pregnant, And it says that she actually prayed to give birth so that she might suffer, not only suffer martyrdom, but suffer with her community, those others who had come to know Jesus in that same time. This is the kind of commitment that as I read about, it is hard for me to fathom because I have never been put close to that kind of situation. But to hear their stories... That they believed that to follow Jesus was so important that they were unwilling to lie. These people had done good. They were Christians. They would long to do good. 
They were not suffering because they had done something evil. They were suffering because they came to know the one whom we follow. They came to know the truth of Christ and him crucified. And they could not call anyone other Lord. And they had to follow this one because this was truth. And despite all the opportunities they had to say no, to say, eh, we can delay it a little bit longer, to say, oh, we'll just lie and get out of it. I won't pretend. Lots of people in that time either lied about or just recanted their Christianity. It happened a lot. In fact, much of kind of the, the centuries after um, Christianity was made legal in the Roman Empire was people debating what to do with those who had recanted during persecution. So it happened. But what we have in, in, in Perpetua and Felicitas, this, this example of what Paul, Peter is talking about here and saying, what does it look like? Because sometimes you will have to make decisions and you will suffer, not because you have done wrong, but because you have done exactly the right thing to follow Jesus the story, I would suggest you read it sometime. It's a fascinating read. To hear how, right, that even at the ends, they prayed for their jailers. They prayed for those who were persecuting them. How this group, you know, prayed that they would face the trials in the Colosseum well. To hear how they went about it and, and to hear how this is where it gets sort of into, into some interesting territory, but like basically the story goes that, that Felicitas and Perpetua were put into the Colosseum to, or the arena together and a mad cow was set upon them. So they would be gored. And afterwards it, it tells a story of, of how one of them said, have they done anything yet? And it was only when she looked down and saw that she was bloody that she realized that until finally... They were tortured. They were made a spectacle for the amusement of others. Finally, they were put to death. And even, it says, recorded at least as they were put to death, they sang psalms and they praised God that God had deemed them worthy. To bear witness to Christ as Lord. The word in Greek for witness is martus or martyrdom, right? That's where we get those terms. Martyrdom means to witness. And this is what largely the early church believed was witness. Faithful unto death. All for doing what is right. They were imprisoned. They were sent to the arena. And ultimately they died. Where I want to end is this little phrase that Paul says, or at least I won't get Paul and Peter mixed up next week. Peter says in his letter, he says, do not fear what they fear. In, 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 in instructing the people on how to suffer in ways that are consistent with the attitude of Christ, he says, do not fear what they fear. Empires rule through fear. The biggest threat that empire has, right, is death. Do what we say or you will die. Because empires need control or they don't work. They need people to toe the line or they don't work. 
and empires largely are allowed to do what they do and have been throughout history because people feared what they fear, that is death. But Peter says, do not fear what they fear. I think if we're honest, we still fear death. I think we share fear. The empires still are successful because we fear death. But Peter says, do not fear what they fear. Follow after the example of Christ. When Christ was put on trial, he was given lots of opportunities to get off. Could have lied. He told Pilate, right? I could 10,000 angels like that. I'd be gone. I have the power to do that. He refused to use that power in that way. He could have said, you guys are so, so wrong and you're so, so stupid because you don't see what's in front of your eyes. Could have insulted them. Could have saved his own skin, even on the cross, right? What did they, what were the jeers that were thrown at him? If you really are the son of man, you saved others, save yourself. He could have. If anyone in history of the world could have, it's Jesus. He had the power to save himself, to save everyone around him like that. But to do so for him and for us who follow would be counter to the character and nature of God to whom Jesus submitted himself to. How do we suffer? Jesus did not fear what they feared. Why? Why did Jesus not fear what they feared? Why did Jesus not fear the empire? It's because Jesus did not fear death. And it's not simply, although there's part of it, it's not simply that he was not afraid to die. I think that if there's anything in Jesus' prayer in the garden, that he didn't want to die. Right? He, he wasn't like, woohoo, death. He was so anxious, his sweat became like drops of blood. He didn't particularly, who wants to suffer and to die? Nobody wants to. But Jesus was willing to because he placed himself and entrusted himself in God whose last word is life, not death. Jesus did not fear what they feared because he did not serve the empire or Caesar for that matter. He entrusted himself to God. And while this may seem controversial, I think there is truth in it. That Jesus, I don't know that he was assured of resurrection. I don't know that. I think he didn't know. That's an opinion. But he believed and knew that God is a God of life and not death. He submitted himself to God because he knew that in either life or death, his life was hidden with God. He believed in resurrection in one way or another. And on the other end of it, we are given assurance. It, we're told, I, I don't think Peter tells us this. Don't be afraid to die. There's no worry in it. It would hurt to suffer and die at all, or for the sake of Jesus. 
It would hurt to suffer and to go through what Perpetua and Felicitas and so many others went through. It would hurt. It's not fun. It wouldn't be comfortable. And so we don't just scoff at death saying, oh, it's no thing. It is a thing. But we don't fear death in the same way because we believe on the other side of cross is resurrection. We believe what Christ said was true. That yes, the Son of Man must suffer. But that there is resurrection on the other side. We do not need to fear what they fear. Because this life is not all that is for us. We are promised a future. We're promised that Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. We believe that this life, as wonderful as it is and can be, is not the last word. And that for those in Christ, as it was for Christ, death is not the last word. Rather, life is. And so we can say... We cannot be controlled with the fears of death because we serve one in whom we have placed our trust with the firm belief and sure hope that even on the other side of death itself and suffering is resurrection. And that assurance gives us confidence to say we cannot be called anything other than we are. For we are Christ's. We bear his name. That's what Christian is, little Christ. Bear his name. And we are assured that in life or in death, we are his. And if you think about it, that changes how we act in our world. If we don't need to fear what others fear, It changes the way we act. If death is not the ultimate fear to have, we can live in different ways, can we not? If to die is not the ultimate end, we can say, yes, I can can be with the sick even though it means I might die. That's what Mother Teresa did. Right? I'm going to go spend some time with lepers. It wasn't that God will protect me. It was more that God will allow me to minister as long as God needs to. And if I die, I am doing so in the service of Christ, for I cannot be anything other than I am. It means that we can show kindness and compassion, recognizing that sometimes that will be reciprocated with violence or anger or hatred. Because we don't fear what they fear. But sometimes that makes us dangerous because we are controlled by the spirit of God and the way of Christ and nothing else. But we can walk forward in confidence knowing that the God who calls leads us well. And that death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. Life is. The cross is not the end. The resurrection is. And so even now we have that to look forward to when God will call all to himself. 
Paul, I got it right this time, says, the dead in Christ will be raised first and we who are still left will rise and we will meet him into the air, in the air. And the language of that is we will meet him in the air and all of us together, we will be with the Lord forever as we usher him in and welcome him into his kingdom. We have a hope in life and in death. For our vision is for the kingdom. And as good as some of the kingdoms of the world may have been and may are, are still, it is not the kingdom of God. And it's for that kingdom that we wait. It is for that kingdom that we work. And it's for that kingdom that we follow Christ wherever he may lead. For our hope in Christ is for this life, but also in the life to come. He is our hope in life and death. And wouldn't you know, there's a song about that. And so the worship team is going to come back up. And one of the ways in which we can give voice and give action, at least as response today to this, is by standing together and declaring it together as the church. That he is our hope in life and in death. And that is our intention by, by his grace and only by the spirit that we will follow him in life. And yes, if it should come to that, even to death. For we do not fear what they fear. Because the perfect love of Christ and of God casts out that fear. And we have entrusted our lives in life and in death into his hands.